0: Hello everybody and welcome to The Rat, brought to you by Michigan Medicine. I'm Jeremy Fallis sitting in the host- hosting chair for today's episode.
1: And I'm Bailey Merzik, Jeremy's co-host for the show. Today we're going to discuss pain management and how colleagues at Michigan Medicine are working to make it as safe and effective as possible for our patients.
0: Before we get into that conversation, make sure you go back and get caught up on any episode of the Wrap that you might have missed. You can find the shows on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or any other podcast hosting platform. New shows can be found on the Michigan Medicine YouTube channel as part of the and as part of the Headlines Week in Review.
1: All right, let's bring in Dr. Trisha Kiefer and Dr. Paul Hilliard. First, let's have the two of you introduce yourselves. And can you discuss your roles that make you experts in pain management?
2: Sure, I can. I'm happy to take a start at that. I'm Paul Hilliard. I'm a uh, um, anesthesiologist by training, and I have uh, uh, additional training in a, uh, by doing a pain fellowship. I have uh, run the acute pain service, and I co-chair the institutional pain committee along with Dr. Kiefer. I also lead the institution's Rewrite the Script um, initiative and have been doing uh, pain management for 19 years.
3: Hi, I'm Trisha Kiefer. I am uh, one of the MedPeds Palliative Care Providers here at the University of Michigan. Um, and I'm the medical director for the Pediatric Palliative Care Program, which is one of the uh, subspecialty pain management teams uh, at the University of Michigan, but specifically serving our pediatric patient, patient population. I um, co-chair, as Dr. Hilliard said, the pain committee uh, with him, and then I also co-chair the uh, pediatric pain subcommittee um, and was part of the group that, that supported the child kind work, uh, which uh, was a certification that our uh, pediatric hospital gained last year.
0: So that, that's a terrific segue into our first question. And Tricia, you can kind of lead this off with us. Um, you know, What do you see as some of the emerging trends in acute and chronic pain management?
3: Yeah, I think for me, what we've focused on um, primarily in our pediatric world is um, novel ways to not use the opioid medications for pain. So in particular, non-pharmacologic therapies, use of um, distraction, massage, uh, aromatherapy, um, much, a much more psychological approach to pain management has been really at the forefront of improving uh, both acute and, in particular, chronic pain care.
1: Yeah, and I think um, that might be a good um, lead into our next question, because we were going to ask you what the challenges were, and I would imagine using those um, new methods might present some challenges sometimes. can you can you talk a little bit about that?
3: I, I, you are absolutely right. <laughs> um using non-pharmacologic therapies uh, may sound easier than turning to medications, but is actually much more challenging because we often don't have people who are trained specifically in what those therapies are. And the data is still emerging, although what is um, what is available is fairly positive regarding the use of non-pharmacologic therapies. Uh, the The focus has previously been on medical management uh, and using our pharmacologic strategies in order to support um, our littlest patients. The other biggest issue is that even if we are able to access those resources within our own institution for our inpatients, it's much more challenging to access non pharmacologic resources within the community in a way that's cost effective for patients and families uh, who often are very stretched with their ability to obtain these services outside of
0: our hospital walls. Paul, well, is, is there a stigma to chronic pain management? And, and how do you and your group go about addressing this and trying to relieve some of that, um, you know, some of the stress that might go along with that?
2: Yeah, without question. Um, patients who suffer with chronic pain are stigmatized at many different levels. And, it, you know, I think it, it takes an a, approach of each one of those levels. I think education is a key component of that how we approach patients even how we react to um you know looking at our schedule for the day whenever you're in the the faculty room prepping with residents and that i think our behaviors and attitudes are the unofficial unwritten curriculum that learners follow and so i think without question there's stigma no, no doubt about it and i think our our part in this is recognized yeah, this patient if they were given a choice probably wouldn't want to be in our clinic today. They probably didn't choose to have chronic back pain or uh, you know be be on a certain therapy. Um and so I think it's just important to model uh compassion and um patience and I think that um setting an example and um um you know teaching our learners and others around us even more seasoned professionals pick up on that vibe and I think it, it you know each one of us has an opportunity to set the tone for uh, for those patients. and so yeah, stigma, no doubt about it, a uh, huge challenge with uh, chronic pain management.
1: So going into the your your you know your work, do you have an example of um, helping a patient um, or a caregiver who is struggling with pain and having them successfully find a way to address their their challenges?
2: I, I'm sure we both have examples. I'm going to share one that was brought up recently from the inpatient setting. Uh, We were caring for a patient who had a very prolonged admission with sickle cell um, exacerbation and also had chronic pain. Uh, We saw this patient numerous times, and when I came on to service, she had been in the hospital several weeks, and um, despite having escalation of care and and, um, a lot of pretty advanced therapeutics, um, she was still rating her pain as a 9 out of 10 using that uh, numeric pain scale and i went and spoke with her and uh, in the middle of our encounter i said you know i i'm i just want to apologize we it looks like we're failing to meet your needs here with pain management and she's interrupted me and said no th- this is the best my pain has ever been managed you don't understand people are listening to me they're trying to help me and so you know it's the, the i think um is reflective of the the uh, complexities of pain management it's a sensory and emotional experience and so, it's not just what patients are, are feeling physically, but how they're feeling in terms of their well-being. And I think our team did a great job in that, that case, although we were not addressing the sensory component adequately with the tools we had, she felt cared for, and she felt like um, that there was a team approach. So, you're you probably looking for a more concrete example than that, but I think that was a victory because some conditions are very painful. And we can only go to, you know, um, a certain point with our therapeutics before they become toxic to patients and actually cause harm. And sometimes we do reach that ceiling, but there's often more that can be done just by listening, um, just by, you know, bringing some of those other tools. And I think us as providers, we are a non-pharma modality. So the way you look at patients, look them in the eyes, pay atten- attention to them, um, I think these are all things that can help. And so I, I would say that's an example. And I, I don't mean to imply that it was me who, um, you know, changed the course for this patient it was all the work leading up to when I was there. So everybody, you know, her experience was people are listening to her. They're trying to help her. And, and I think that was a big victory for pain management, despite what the numbers may show. And, you know, I think it also highlights the challenges of using um assessment tools that are so binary.
0: Krisha, did you have an example that you wanted to share, one that kind of stuck out to you?
3: You know, I can think of a lot of examples where um, approaching malignant pain with, um, you know, sort of a different lens can be really important in particular in kids with serious illness. But the example I wanted to bring up is actually an example of a patient with non-malignant severe pain. Um, And I wanted to bring it up specifically because what it showed was really the sort of better together model over at Children's and Women's, because this was a patient who upon assessment, um, the palliative care team was one of the last teams to be involved in his care. It was highly appropriate for every single team that had been engaged in the care of this patient with a serious but non-malignant illness. Um, And so it it was really gratifying to go through his pain assessment and talk about all the things that he had tried. He had come from an outside institution, He had tried virtually every non-pharmacologic option in the toolkit that we have, including child life, pet therapy, art therapy, working with virtual reality, working with our psychology team. He had had uh, the acute pain service involved um, and also been working with our acute pain uh, service nurses and was on one of the floors that has a champion in our PRN nursing program. And all of this. Helped support his pain. And then we just sort of put that final piece in, which helping bring that together for him and talk about how to use all those, and then adding a medication, um, which I know I said that non-pharm is actually the most important thing. But um, it, in this particular instance, moving him from a traditional opioid to actually using a medication called bu- bu- buprenorphine, excuse me, for, uh, uh, it's a bit of a mouthful but ended up really being uh, the final thing in in that huge multimodal um, plan for him that uh, ended up supporting him to be able to get home and to manage his pain at home. Um, And so I, I feel like that's one of those places where I can see where our team and our engagement made a big difference, but I could also see where every other team had impacted him as well. And that was really incredible to see.
0: It, those are two wonderful stories and, and, you know, just speaks to the volumes of work and, you know, kind of the inter- interdisciplinary nature that goes into this process. And um, I kind of want to throw it back a little bit. Uh, and I want you both to think back to um, how everything kind of got started for you, because I'm sure the beginning of your career is a lot different than the than the current one. And we'll get to that in a little bit. But as clinical experts you know, in pain management here at UM Health, like what led to you you know, being leaders in the space? And how do you think you got here? And Paul, maybe you can kick us off on that.
2: Yeah, thanks for the question, Jeremy. I I think for me, it was a a combination of interest, um, luck and hard work, you know, and I I think it's um, uh, a a partly just being in the right place at at the right time for becoming, you know, a leadership role of this, but also just having a I think, a deep passion for this work. For me, it began before medical school. I had an interest in pain management. I I read a book called The Gift of Pain by Dr. Paul Bryan, who is a surgeon who spent his career in India working with um, Hansen's disease or leprosy and noted how devastating it was when patients stopped feeling pain. And it it just sparked an interest and a curiosity in me. Um, I really never thought it would be a career path for me, but it was an interest. Um, then in medical school, I started to gravitate towards um, the, the operative side of things. Uh, one thing led to another, and career in anesthesia and then pain management. As far as the leadership path, um, again, I think it's a combination of, of uh, hard work and, and good fortune, you know, being in the right place at the right time and um, doing work that was meaningful. I, others recognized that and saw a value to it. And uh, when doors opened, I would walk through them.
3: So my path was maybe a little a little bit less direct. Um, I think as a trainee, I shied away from uh, pain management and was really frustrated by it and found it to be a, a big obstacle. Um, and uh, just didn't quite know how to overcome that. And my path for other reasons led me to palliative care and really the focus on symptom management and how important it is for patients to have really good symptom management when they have serious illness and and especially if we wanna engage in discussions about quality of life and their values, really helped me see the value of, you know, diving in and getting to sort of know as much as I could about pain management and to take on as many of those cases as possible to be able to know and understand how I can actually make a difference. And I think since then, um, you know, a number of people have inspired me, but in particular, one of the nurses on our team, really um, highlighted a lot of the issues and the things that brought to the forefront through a lot of our conversations um, and hard work as a team, um, that helped me sort of drive forward in figuring out how can we support Michigan Medicine to continue to evolve in the, um, the pain management space.
1: So lastly, I know you guys touched on this a little bit, um, what are some of the latest pain management research tools, techniques that you find to be promising here in the near future, and what might be aspirational um, in addition to what you mentioned earlier?
2: Yeah, I, I can take a first go at this. The you know I think there's been remarkable progress in certain pockets of pain management. So pain is a, a huge topic. It's like saying car. You know, are we talking about sports car? Are we talking about four wheel drive? Are we talking about Sedan, you know, it, it's a huge topic, and so I, I think that there's not one global approach to pain that I see as is really um, earth-shattering. But I think I'm I've, I've definitely seeing pockets and areas where remarkable progress is being made. And I think one area that strikes me most, perhaps, is in the last two to three years, the pharmacological advances in, in headache and chronic headache management. Um, tremendous number of options have, have come to market, everything from intranasal ketamine to some of the uh, CGRP protein blockers and things, just a, a, a real hot area of research and development. I have not seen that in other pockets of pain management. So, you know, I, th- I think we're seeing um, areas where there's uh, remarkable progress. And I think there's areas where there's a lot of work to be done. Um, looking to the future, I'm very, very interested to see how AI will start to inform uh, clinical decision support and um, um, evaluation tools as well. Um, Other interesting areas include more use of distraction techniques like virtual reality, and um, especially as that relates to some of the behavioral health components of pain management. So I I don't see one thing uh, per, per se, but I definitely see pockets of really interesting and emerging work and technology.
3: I echo everything that Dr. Hilliard said, Um, and I would say sort of in the pediatric world, I think um, we're also seeing enthusiasm about some of our uh, therapies that have been more traditionally seen in the adult setting, some of our regional blocks, and then the use of the medication I was talking about earlier, buprenorphine, in a younger population um, is probably sort of the you know, the leading edge of where pain management is going from a pharmacologic or interventional perspective. I mean, as we were talking about before, I think a lot of the non-pharmacologic strategies as we continue to get more information about what is the most effective and how to make it the most effective. um, But in particular, um, the sort of intensive psychologic support for patients with uh, particularly chronic pain um, and particularly children who have um, varying different developmental stages and different approaches that need to be taken for these, I think are really what we're hoping for to um, to see sort of gather the most um, support because they've proven to be the most effective in our patient population.
0: Uh, thank, thank you for those wonderful answers. There's a lot to look forward to, and the work that you're doing has been tremendous. So thanks for everything that you're doing. Uh, and I want to thank you both for joining us and discussing uh, this important topic. Um, and for folks at home, if you want to learn more about pain management Michigan Medicine, we have a bunch of stories on, on headlines that you can find at mmheadlines.org. That's mmheadlines.org.
1: Okay, it's time for the lightning round, when we ask one of our guests quick quickfire questions. Dr. Hilliard, you're you're going to be in the hot seat today. Are you ready to go?
2: I'm ready. All right.
0: So fall officially started last weekend. Apple cider, anything pumpkin spice, things of that nature. What is your favorite fall drink? Or are you going off the board with something else?
2: You know, I know this is a controversial one, but I just love the pumpkin spice latte. I Maybe I'm just a a simple person and I I maybe reveal too much about myself. But to me, I, I just look forward to that every year.
1: Okay, well, you're ready for that one. <laughs> so let's stick with the food theme. Earlier this week was National Pancake Day. What is your favorite breakfast food or breakfast meal?
2: Easy, French toast. It's done up anyway, just syrup? Just just French toast. My grandma used to make it uh, Texas toast, um, really thick slice of bread, nice crisp on the outside, and it almost didn't matter what you put on it. The toast by itself was so good, so... Yeah. French toast. Perfect.
0: Well, you, you kind of alluded to this, to, uh, to this earlier. You didn't even know we were going to ask this question, but we ran a story about the auto show charity preview. And of course the Detroit auto show just wrapped up. So are you into cars at all? And if so, what is your dream vehicle?
2: Uh, I'm into cars and they're all my dream vehicles um, to be quite honest with you. I think in different phases of life, I've had different dream vehicles. So um, my my passion is to kind of go old school manual transmission with no radio on, no nothing, and uh just enjoy going through the gears, not something too powerful um but something that it makes you get through all the gears and so um i I actually um prefer a uh, you know fairly simple car usually um uh, something European and something small
1: all right, and finally, if you could go back in time and meet one person from history, who would it be and why?
2: I, I suppose I would like to meet my great-grandfather. You know, it's um, I would love to know more about my own family and the the origins, where we came from. My family name was Boucher, and legend has it, he was a stowaway on a ship uh, somewhere from Wales, but we think he was French. And when he got here, he died. And my um, uh, grandfather, who had just been born, took the, the family name Hilliard. And so I really don't know much about that uh, side of my background. So I'd I'd like to meet my uh, great-grandfather. What wonderful background. Yeah, that'd be great to know. Um, Thanks for sharing that, Paul.
0: Thanks for playing. Uh, It's hard to be in the hot seat, but I think you handled it really, really well. Uh, And thanks to you again uh, for this important conversation. Uh, And once again, we'll direct you back to mmheadlines.org.
1: And while you're there, you you can check out this week's featured stories, which included an invitation to the upcoming DEI Symposium and a look at the -the state-of-the-art Cancer Care Center um, being delivered at the Brighton Center for Specialty Care and University Hospital. Find all that and more at mmheadlines.org.
0: Okay, Bailey, we asked Dr. Hilliard about what his dream car would be. Are you into cars? And if so, what do you like driving around?
1: Um, I'm not really into cars, but I would love to have some kind of convertible, especially this time of year to just drive with the top off and look at the fall colors and with a nice cool breeze. That'd be awesome. What about you, Jeremy? Are you into cars?
0: I'm not into cars, but I do like something smooth and comfortable. Um, But if I had to like, like I'm thinking about like my childhood fantasy type thing, I would have to pick something sporty. Um, I guess right now, like a a Porsche 911 or something like that would be a lot of fun to zip around and something that handled really well and went really fast and like you really didn't feel anything. That would be pretty cool.
2: For over a century, Michigan Medicine has been on a mission to bring Michigan answers to patients and families across Michigan and beyond. It's why University of Michigan Health is honored to have been named Michigan's number one hospital once again by U.S. News and World Report and to have been named year after year to the prestigious honor roll of the nation's top hospitals. If you need a Michigan answer in your life, think Michigan Medicine and visit MichiganAnswers.com. All right, well, it's time for the weekly
1: trivia contest. And this week's question is, what is the theme for the upcoming DEI Symposium on October 20th? Once again, what is the theme for the upcoming DEI Symposium on October 20th? You can find the answer in this week's headline story. And once you know it, send it to headlines at med.umich.edu for the chance to win a prize.
0: And that's all we have for today. Thank you to Dr. Hilliard and Dr. Kiefer for joining us. And thanks as always to all our listeners and viewers for everything that you do for our patients, families, and each other. We'll see you again next week.